Well, we have been working in the series Monumental, so I want to kind of take us on a tour of where we've been because we are concluding our series today. We started off talking about corrupt monuments, that there are certain things that get celebrated, that get put on pedestals, that are clearly pointing us in the opposite direction of God. And so we, we started our series talking about King Hezekiah, who was a young king who uh, entered into his reign and, and tore down these high places of, of worship and other spots and throughout the kingdom uh, that had things like Asherah poles, these, these poles that were to another god, uh, this Canaanite de- uh, uh, female deity uh, that was a temptation to the, the Hebrew people. And so he, he tears down corrupt monuments, and, and then we went from there and we talked about uh, the faithful monuments that are meant to point us to God as opposed to point us away from God. And so we talked about the story of Joshua and the people crossing the Jordan River on their way to the promised land in which uh, it wasn't until the, the priest's feet got into the water of the Jordan River that the water uh, separates, that it becomes dry land for them to cross over into the promised land. And it's in the middle of the river that, that then... Uh, Joshua tells people to grab these stones and to use them to make a monument uh, that for all time that they would remember the power of their God. And so we, we move from there to talking about how sometimes those faithful monuments, those things that are meant to point us to God, sometimes we get tempted to looking at them only, that our focus instead of looking through them and up to God um, it becomes lowered. And so we looked at the story of the temple and, and that the scribes who Jesus said were devouring the, the widow's houses, uh, that um, in the midst of that scene, we see this faithful widow who, who gives all that she has. And we usually think of it as, oh, doesn't that make us feel good about giving? But, but it's also in the context of people who were exploiting people who weren't actually lifting up those who were uh, in most in need. And so they leave the scene and Jesus is with his disciples and they say, look at these beautiful walls and this beautiful building. And Jesus is like, hey, not a stone will be left uh, because the stones aren't what mattered, but the people in the story were mattered. And that takes us to last week when we talked about the living monuments, that, that Genesis 1 tells the story of God's cosmic temple, of, of the whole world as God's temple, not just a temple in Jerusalem. And in that whole world, there are statues to God, but it's not like the statues of other religions. It's living people, male and female, he created them, that the image of God goes about uh, in the world. And so in the midst of that, it's time to turn our gaze towards Jesus and thinking about Jesus as the monument, uh, the greatest monument, uh, the one who turns our eyes to God in new uh, and most powerful ways. And so... When we get into today's text, I I just want to first have us pause to be reminded of something that I think we might take for granted. But in all of these these messages, I think we are facing a tension in which we often think about God as being distant, but we need to be reminded that God is very, very close. And so, you know, even thinking back where we started, that you had to go to this high place, to go to this far away spot, go up high on a mountain to see God. Uh, but actually that God fills the entire world, that God is everywhere, that you can encounter God uh, wherever you are. And so uh, we don't have a God that's kind of that Western image of sitting on a cloud with a lightning bolt, uh, but God is close. And God didn't abandon creation. Uh, There's certain conceptions of like, well, kind of 
starting everything into motion and then being distant. But the prologue of John that we are going to read a snippet from talks about God at work in the creation uh, throughout time, that God is constantly working in the creation. And so what I want us to kind of think about today is the question of uh, who has seen God and how, cl- how close uh, does God choose to get in this world? How do we see God uh, who is actually close by? And so there's actually a lot of interesting kind of biblical discussion around the idea of who has seen God. Uh, there's certain veins of the tradition, certain interpretive lines that says that you can't see God, and there's certain ones that say um, that somebody just saw God, and they, are, they don't really make any sort of defense of it. They just say it happened. And so, for example, in Exodus 33, Moses is said to have um, spoken to God face to face as one speaks to a friend. Uh, and, and that's a very intimate kind of image of, of God and Moses speaking face to face. And in Isaiah 6, we have this image of, of in the year of King Uzziah um, that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And it doesn't kind of have to defend it. It just, I saw the Lord on the throne. And so we have these kind of blatant just kind of hey, they saw God. Uh, But that's not the only part of the tradition. We also get these texts about the invisible God who cannot be seen, and that takes us to today's text from the Gospel of John. John writes, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And John continues, No one has ever seen God, It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Uh, And so John tells us that no one has seen God, and yet Jesus is able to reveal God. And so there's this special revelatory role of Jesus of, of making visible that which we can't see. And so John invites us into this, this tension of, of, Um, What is it for us to to long to see God and to try to see God through Jesus? Now, this problem of how do we portray God is a long-standing problem. Uh, If you are an artist, you have to make decisions in this kind of uh, either the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition of how do we portray God in an image. Uh, And that gets complicated because we have in the Ten Commandments things about not making graven images, and and sometimes that gets interpreted in ways that you shouldn't make any images. And so by the end of the first millennium, uh, the early church, you know, the, I guess now we're talking about the kind of closer to the medieval church, is, is having to decide what they think about images of God. And so there's something called the kind of iconoclasm or iconoclastic uh, controversies in which Christians are arguing about images and their role in worship. And so you might think about icons and iconography, and are they, do they have a place in worship? Do they, can they actually point us to God? And so there were a lot of people who said images don't work. Uh, that, that doesn't ever actually lead us in our eyes and our vision towards the invisible God. And so people rejected them. Uh, and later, to kind of give a little peek, later in the Reformation, in the Reformed circles, uh, they ended up really kind of wanting to bare bones worship and take away images and, and make it more about the word and not images. But what wins out in these discussions around images and worship, what wins the day is in this theological debate is the incarnation. 
uh, that the word of God become flesh, uh, that that is the precedent for saying that you can uh, use art to, to point to God. Uh, that, that God chooses to become visible. That God chooses to be in flesh and therefore uh, seen. And that that is the precedent for all images uh, being able to, to point us ultimately to God. And that it is okay to use images for worship. And so there's something about the incarnation, the embodiment of the love of God uh, that we need to see. That the abstract principle doesn't do us as much justice as actually seeing something does. You know, we can hear that God loves us, but actually seeing God love uh, someone in action makes a more powerful impact, and it shapes the way we live in, in ways that just the words don't always uh, do for us. And so, yeah, we know God is love, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only son gives us a framework to see things uh, that just hearing about love doesn't always do for us. And so I, I want to make one other kind of early church note for you on this, on this, uh, this incarnation, uh, which ties us to last week. The early church, when they read texts like we did last week of, of God making humanity in the image of God, uh, there was a, a, a lot of interpreters who would take that in a Christological way, a fancy way of saying in a Jesus way, right? Uh, that when God said, let us make man in our image or humankind or male and female, he created them, uh, that image of God uh, for early church theologians was the image of Christ, that even before Christ is in flesh, uh, that the prototype of all humanity was always going to be Jesus, that we were always supposed to be made into the image of Christ in the flesh uh, and to live like God, like Jesus lives like God on earth. And so uh, there's this Christological bent of how do we live into the image of Christ? And I think we all struggle with, we have decisions to make. We have confusion. We, we look for clarity. How do I know how to live in the midst of this world? And the early church's answer and the church throughout all time's answer is look to Christ. Christ is the image with which you should live out the world, uh, in this world. And so I, I think that sometimes we struggle with um, what to do with Christ as the image and, and how do I apply it to my life and and what do I do about questions that I have that, that, that aren't necessarily questions that are in the Gospels? And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what is it for Jesus to have seen God in a way that, that others haven't? And how do we hold up this tension that Isaiah and Moses see God, but, um, but John says that no one has seen God? And I think maybe a kind of generous way of, of talking about this, of how do we say that people have seen God but not quite seen God like Jesus, is to talk about resolution of pictures and images. Um, you know, if you've got, you know, if you're watching online, you've got a, a, a computer or a smartphone or a tablet that has a certain resolution and the video is coming to you in a certain resolution. And I was really struck by the changes in video resolutions as uh, my wife and I watched through a documentary that came out on Netflix recently. Uh, which was an ESPN documentary, documentary that now is on Netflix, uh, but The Last Dance, Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls. And this documentary is trying to show you what that last season for them was like, 
but it gives you footage from the 80s and footage from the 90s and footage of people giving interviews about it like in the last year or two, you know, recent interviews. And so the video is going from very different resolutions. You know, the video cameras, top professional video cameras of the 80s are not like the top cameras of today. They're both showing you what happened, but at very different resolutions, very different kind of image qualities. And I can imagine if you were to take one of our like 60 inch TVs today, a 4K screen, and take it to anybody watching a Bulls game in the 80s and 90s and put it in front of them, uh, they would be struck by, wow, uh, I, I've never watched a game <laughs> like I'm watching it now. And now I know that that documentary probably has a very different lens of viewing for all of our Detroit Piston fans. Watching the Bulls documentary is going to be a very different, uh, different experience. Um, but these different resolutions take you into that moment in different ways. And, and we can find details in these higher qualities that we didn't have before. And so, uh, you know, I think in, in life, we sometimes settle for a thumbnail view of something without going into the big picture and looking into details. But sometimes we settle for like the old footage that, that isn't as clear. And there's plenty of, of ways of seeing God that is real grainy and, and, and not quite so clear. But Jesus is that crystal clear image of God uh, that always rewards you with looking in even more in detail. Like uh, that's what's beautiful about high resolution images and videos is it rewards you from getting closer and looking into more detail of things in the background. Uh, it, if you've ever seen someone who's taken their smartphone camera and they've went and taken a, they've gotten a photo print made of it, uh, of their image. It might look really nice on the camera and then you print it out into eight by 10 or larger images and suddenly it looks a lot more grainy than you thought it did. And the image quality isn't as quite as clear and so the image might be on the wall and you're like, oh, I, I like it from this distance but as I get closer to it, I don't, I, I don't like what I'm seeing as well. But Jesus is that image with such resolution that no matter how close to it you get, Jesus always gives you another aspect of God, the closer you look, you will be rewarded, you will be blessed, you will be changed. And so Jesus is that image of God that, that gives us a deeper picture, a more clear picture than anyone else. And we need to do something with that, right? If, it doesn't do us any good if we have monuments that point us to God if we don't respond to those monuments. And if Jesus is the clearest image of God uh, for us to see in the world, how do we respond to that image and to that clarity? Because I know about how messy our world is and how confusing it is. And so when you find something clear, how do you respond? And so the Gospels use the language about following Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John uses the language about come and see, which works pretty nicely with our imagery. Uh, but, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus sees the new disciples that he calls and he says, hey, you want to know what it's like? Come and see. Follow me. And if we want to know what God is like, we have to follow Jesus. We can't just look from afar, but, but like a, a beautiful image and a great video, it's supposed to be moving. And it's supposed to move you to action and to a new life. And what good is an image of God if it doesn't change us and it doesn't invite us into something new? 
Uh, Richard Rohr uh, once said, we've spent all our time worshiping Jesus and very little time following him. How many of us know a good detail about who Jesus was? And we know pretty well the story of Jesus. But how often do we let that image rush over us and invite us in as we then follow Jesus into a new life, into the image of God even more clearly, the likeness of God even more clearly. And we are all invited on that path. And we are invited to kind of tear down those monuments, those, those other images that don't take us to God, that take us the opposite way. We're invited to, to, to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God but ultimately to look to Jesus as that crystal clear image that invites us into new ways of life. And, and like we talked about with the faithful monuments, you don't always see until you start following fully. You know, you put that foot out into the Jordan River and then the waters move away. And so how many people are willing to step out towards Jesus uh, to trust that you will see more clearly the closer and the closer you get to Jesus and to get moving along the path that leads us to God. And so I hope that the image of Jesus uh, is one that brings you encouragement, that always brings you comfort because uh, there's a lot of people that let you down in this world. There's 2,000 years of Christians who often will let you down, that our, our church history often doesn't live up to what it can be. But Jesus will never let you down. And how often do we look out into the world and see that kind of cruciform image, that the image of Jesus out in the city around us and call us into a life that looks like that image. And it's on that path where we start to follow Jesus. It's on that path where we start to live like Jesus that the image of Jesus gets even clearer to us. Uh, that you don't know what it's like to be a prophet without welcome in your own homeland until you are trying to live like Jesus and finding no welcome at home. Whether that home is your individual home, your workplace, whatever it is. Right? That it's in the way of, of living like Jesus that we truly understand him. It's the way of following Jesus that you understand what it is to have a cross to carry. Uh, it doesn't happen, you don't see it clearly from the sidelines. Uh, it's when you actually deny yourself that you understand what it's like. Uh, it's when you actually receive punishment and, and, and you know, ridicule uh, for following Jesus that you understand who Jesus was even more clearly. And so we are all invited into the gallery uh, of the God who, who is invisible and yet becomes visible for our sake who becomes visible so we can know how it is to live uh, the way that he's called us to live, to love like he's called us to love. And so take heart that our God, while we might not see God, is not a distant God who's far off, who doesn't want to be known, who doesn't do anything to be known, but is the God who moves in people like you and me, like our neighbors, and who calls us on a path like his sons and to uh, a kingdom of God that lives in peace and in love. And so I want to invite you today to say yes to God and say yes to starting a life that makes a monumental impact in the world. Would you join me in prayer?
Lord God, I ask that you would renew our eyes, our spiritual eyes that, that look for you. Lord, we ask that you would give us a vision for the world that you have for the world, Lord. And I, I pray that you would give us a curiosity to explore, uh, to explore you in more detail. That that, from, from afar, that, that far distance, yes, we, we see you, but to hunger and to long to get closer to you, to know you more fully. Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage to move our feet, to move our hands, to, to move to follow you, to come and see what you are doing in this world, uh, to take comfort that, uh, that you have chosen to love even our messiness, that you are in the midst of our messiness, loving us out of our messiness. Lord, thank you, and it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.